It was a typical summer Florida day. The sky was sunny with patches of cumulonimbus clouds. I was driving from Daytona Beach, Florida to a small town by the name of Quincy in Tallahassee, Florida. I was en route on this four-hour drive to meet Geraldine Jerry Mock, the first woman to fly solo around the world in 1964. Jerry was a housewife from Columbus, Ohio. She and her husband were part owners of a single-engine Cessna 180. One night after making dinner, Jerry shared with her husband and children that she was going to be the first woman to fly solo around the world. Her husband initially thought she was joking, up until the next morning when Jerry took him out to their Cessna 180 to share her plans with him again. And she did it. It took her 29 days to set the world record, inspiring many, especially women in aviation. When I reached a fuel stop along the way, I started to think about what I would say to Jerry after meeting her. I felt myself becoming so nervous. What was I after? Obviously, the chance to meet this incredible woman who I'd read so much about. Deep inside, I was just looking for validation. When I decided to fly around the world, my family thought it was a joke. Nobody, aside from my mom, really took me serious up until I had a launch date. My friends tried to discourage me by saying how impossible it was, and my classmates, well, especially the ones that had more flight experience than me, they tried to tell me that I was on a mission to go kill myself. Yeah, that was tough to hear. It was clear I should brush this idea of flying around the world off and try to pursue traditional jobs in aviation, right? You see, I simply couldn't shake off the idea. It was as if it was a part of my DNA. It consumed me. I seriously spent almost every moment of my time nurturing this idea in my soul. It didn't matter what others had to say about me flying around the world. That wasn't going to affect me. But what really mattered to me was what Jerry had to say. I pulled up to Jerry's driveway and heard a voice from the balcony. Who's there? Hi, Jerry. My name is Shasta. I I'm here to meet with you. Is this still a good time? I said nervously. Come in, dear. She responded. I walked into Jerry's house and saw a petite woman in a dress standing there with a polite smile. Her home was cozy and full of pictures and artifacts. We sat down in her living room right next to each other. I looked up at her and I could feel my nerves racing for fear that she would call me an imposter, tell me I was wrong, or that flying around the world was really hard for people like me. After a minute of awkward silence, I managed to mumble the first question that popped into my mind. Jerry, what did you do after completing your global flight? I'm not sure where this question came from. Afghanistan, she answered with a kind smile. My face dropped. I was shocked. Did I hear her correctly? Did she just say Afghanistan? This answer made me breathe a little easier. My guard was coming down. 
I was starting to not feel so afraid of Jerry's reaction towards my plans of flying around the world. Jerry, I responded gleefully, I'm originally from Afghanistan. What a coincidence. Jerry went on to tell me how when she landed in Pakistan during the global flight, she saw the mountains of Afghanistan standing so tall and beautifully, which left her mesmerized. She made a promise to herself right then and there that when the trip was over, she would visit Kabul, the country's capital. Eventually, Jerry and I started to speak about my plans to fly around the world. After I finished my elevator speech, she paused, took a moment, and said, Well, be sure to fly a single-engine airplane. That's all you need, really. If you don't have enough confidence in your engine to get you around the world, why would you need two of them? I started to laugh. She then went on to say, You are going to do it. I see it in your eyes. That look is all too familiar to me. And when you travel to the different countries, send me a postcard. Pioneers and heroes are everyday people who do something extraordinary. Jerry was a pioneer for so many reasons. And she was my hero for not only paving the runway for women to fly around the world, but also for reassuring me that someday I will too. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atlantic Aviation. Atlantic Aviation provides aircraft ground support in over 60 locations across the U.S. I'm proud to be partnered with a company that puts their people first and values diversity and inclusion. Their vision and mission is evident through the various resource programs they support. Experience the Atlantic attitude today. Check out AtlanticAviation.com to see all 60-plus locations and plan your next visit. Our guest today is Dr. Ellen Stofan. She serves as the Undersecretary for Science and Research at the Smithsonian. Ellen is from the great state of Ohio, the birthplace of flight. Her father worked for NASA, and her mother was a science teacher. Ellen watched her first rocket launch at the age of four. At age 14, she realized that she wanted to be a planetary geologist. Ellen received her PhD from Brown and went on to serve as the chief scientist for NASA. Ellen is the first woman to serve as director of the National Air and Space Museum. Ellen, welcome, and thanks for joining the conversation on Pioneers in Aviation. Thank you. You're a big hero of mine, so I am happy to be here. So who is Ellen? In addition to the incredible career that you've built, we would like to get to know you personally. Okay. Well, I always say one of the important things about me is the fact that I have three kids. I have a son who's 32 and a 28 and 25 year old daughters. Um, so first and foremost, I'm a mom. I'm a planetary geologist. I'd love to study volcanoes around the solar system, um, including some right here on earth. 
Uh, so, you know, that's pretty much me. Love to travel, love to do fun things. I love it. You know, mothers in this industry hardly get the opportunity to introduce this significant part of their lives. So it's great that you lead with that. As I mentioned in the introduction, you currently serve as Undersecretary of Science and Research at the Smithsonian. How is your new position different from your previous role as Director of the Air and Space Museum? So when I was Director of the Air and Space Museum, we're in the middle of a major renovation of our museum on the National Mall. So I had been doing a lot of work, really thinking about what sort of exhibits should we have in the renovated building, whose stories should we be telling, and really thinking about the fact that we have to tell all the stories of everyone so that every child who comes in the museum, whether they're a girl or a boy, whether they're Latinx or whether they're um, African-American, I want every kid to walk in there, see people who look like them, who have done amazing things. Um, for example, that's why we were so excited to give you the National Air and Space Museum trophy to really highlight, look, women are out there. They've done amazing things in history and they're still out there doing amazing things. So that was really fun. But when the secretary of the Smithsonian, Lonnie Bunch, asked me if I would step up to being undersecretary for science and research, I was pretty excited about it because the Smithsonian does an amazing range of research from taking the first image of a black hole to we have scientists who are rover drivers on, on, on Mars um, to an amazing array of scientists looking at ecosystems on Earth, on, on uh, biodiversity on Earth, looking at the effects of climate change, but even more importantly, trying to find research-based solutions to help keep this planet sustainable. Well, that sounds like an exciting shift. When I was researching your background, I had a realization. At a young age, you were introduced to science. Your parents were very supportive of your interest. You found yourself at Brown with professors who believed in you. You went on to work for NASA, where you were sponsored by the people around you. Now, I'm not discounting some of the challenges you faced, which we'll get into later, but because of these very positive, empowering, and encouraging series of events throughout your life, you are a pioneer, a true leader in aviation and aerospace. You are the example of what it can look like if we truly enable the women in this generation. Would you agree? You know, I would. And, and to me, that's why it's so important for me. How, how can I help be that voice of support that so many young girls um, don't have? So many kids of color, they think, I don't belong. People who look like me don't, don't work in this space. And, and the fact that I had such a strong foundation allowed me when I finally did get into, you know, of course they eventually did happen where I would have people treat me as though I were something other because I was a woman. When I finally got into those situations, I had had such support earlier on that it let me press through. Because frankly, if I had had discouragement from my parents, from my teachers, from my professors, I probably wouldn't have stayed. And so that's why I think uh, we really need to look out and say, how can we be that voice of support for those coming up behind us. You are the example, Ellen. If we stay true to all of the outreach, especially with the young and diverse women, I can only imagine how different the world would be, how different organizations would be, 
even how different society would be. This, I hope, gives people perspective and reassurance that their work will make a difference uh, in the long run. Yeah, it's funny. One of the um, one of the women who actually went on to become one of the Mercury 13 um, astronauts, well, the women who wanted to be astronauts but were denied the ability to be to be astronauts, she said when she started flying as a pilot, that the pilot, the first time she went up, um, that the instructor said, you're a natural. And she said every time she had difficulty after that, she said, well, you know, I'll get past this because that guy told me I was a natural. And you just think, wow, that one little piece of positive reinforcement allowed her to go on to become a great pilot. And so you really have to think about your words matter. Our words matter. When we, when we encounter kids, when we encounter our, our peers, those words of encouragement matter. Yeah, especially in the critical stages of learning something new where you might not have a great deal of confidence to begin with. So hearing encouraging comments really help a lot. I've actually had a, a few experiences in my flight training where sure enough, the feedback was just not productive. And I had to stop myself and say, wait a minute, I can do this. This is not my reality. So I'd like to share with you, when I showed up to my first semester at Embry-Riddle, which is the university that I graduated from, I honestly, I felt so out of place. I walked into almost every class and noticed that the other students just didn't look like me. And more importantly, they didn't come from a similar background as me. It was tough. And I was constantly doubting my ability um, to succeed. My support group really came down to my two younger sisters who on the weekends would meet up with me over McDonald's. God, you gotta love that dollar menu uh, when you're in college. Um, they would hear me out and encourage me to keep going. When I decided to fly around the world, my support group then became the dream team who were students who were studying at my university. And I've come to realize that without this support, I really would have given up a long time ago. During your time at Brown, when you were working on your PhD, how did you cope with being the only woman in most of your classes? And who is a part of your support group? You know, at, at Brown, it was interesting because when I started out, it was about half women and half men. But by the time I left, a lot of the women had dropped out of the program. And that was so discouraging to watch other women leave and, and that ratio get worse and worse and worse until there weren't that many women around. And, you know, I have to say my, my biggest supporter was my husband because I would go home and I would just be like, oh, this was horrible and this was horrible. And he said, he would just sort of say, yeah, but are they, are they right in criticizing you? Are they right in, you know, are, do you belong there? And, and, and I would say, well, yeah. And he's like, so, so what's the problem? <laughs> so he, he really helped bolster me up and, and really kept me going. And then of course I had some really close women friends who I could look to and say, you know, we're all in this together. We have to, we have to keep going. And, and that was, that was really important to me. Oh God. Yeah. Having that support group of people, whether it be your husband, your friend, your sister, it is so important, especially in those moments where you've just reached your limit. And my husband, bless him, he keeps me grounded. And when I do have those tough moments or tough conversations or interactions, 
it's so great to just go home and process it all and then just vent it all out. I recently heard a young woman who is struggling with flight training say how her backup plan, if flying didn't work out, was to get married. This was a bit shocking, but not really. (laughs) You have mentioned upon graduating with your PhD, some people remarked on how you really don't need to work because you have a husband. Do you think it's okay for women to have these male or partner-like dependent backup plans? You know, I I feel really torn about it. Um, and, And I'll tell you, when someone made that comment to me, because it was a peer of mine, and we were both applying for jobs at the same time and kind of like, are we going to find a right, the right job, the right position? So I thought he and I were on the same level. And when he made that comment to me, it all of a sudden made me think, how does he look at me? He's looking at me like, like what I've been, you know, five years of getting a PhD where you're up late and you're stressed and you're working so hard. And he's like, does, does he think I was doing this as like a hobby? you know, that I'm not serious. And so that's where, as a woman, you start to realize some of my, who I regard as peers, don't really look at me as a peer. They look at me first and foremost, oh, you're a woman, you're a wife, Um, you're not a scientist. And I I think that's the struggle so many of us struggle with professionally. We want to first be the director of the Air and Space Museum. We want to first be a scientist. We want to first be a pilot or an engineer or or a historian, or you know, whatever. We don't want to be, oh, you're a girl, first and foremost, because somehow that's implying that you're a lesser. Um, on the other hand, you know, if someone really doesn't want to have a career path, they want to do something else, that's that's great. But I think frankly, in in today's economy, um, you know, it's it's pretty tough to go down that path. Yeah, it goes so much deeper than that. Um, traditionally in some parts of the world, especially outside of America, it's kind of implied that when you get married, your career ends there. And then you have to transition into being a housewife and a mother. That's it. But it was interesting to hear this young woman share her backup plan. And look, I get it. Before I got into aviation, because of my Afghani roots, I grew up thinking that I was going to get married and be a housewife. Like that was the ultimate goal for me. And then I was introduced to aviation and all of that changed. So I, I totally get it. I think it's really important for people to follow, you know, whether you're a woman or a man to really follow your passion, because that's going to be a really important part of your life and your kids grow up and go away. You know, my kids are grown up and gone. And so, so you have to say, what is it? What is it that's about me? You know, what is, what am I contributing? How am I helping the world move forward? And that totally might be being a volunteer and being at home, or it might be being a pilot, or it might be having some other career. So I think for every person, finding your passion and feeling like you're contributing to this planet and our, our society is really important. I once heard a quote that said, a woman alone can have power. When women come together, they have impact. There is power in the pact. 
This was especially apparent to me when I watched the blockbuster movie Hidden Figures, which I know is one of your favorites. You reference it a lot. It was just great to see Katherine Johnson, who contributed so much to the success of the moon landing. Um, it was so great to see her have the support of her colleagues, Mary Jackson and Dorothy Vaughn, as they navigated through their careers at NASA. It was just, it was so powerful. Do you think it's critical to have a pact as you go through your career? And who is a part of your pact at NASA? Because I'm kind of envisioning Ellen Stofan with her um, Mary Jackson and Dorothy Vaughn uh, pact and just, you know, doing great things with research. Um, so did you have a pact and how important is it? I, I did, you know, for, for a, a long time, it's been my colleague, Seuss Mercar, who is um, leading a new mission that just got selected by NASA to Venus called uh, Veritas. Um, and she's a geologist like I am, and we've collaborated on a lot of papers and having this really close woman friend who, you know, we worked together, but we were also friends has been really wonderful. Um, there was another woman at JPL, um, Diane Evans, who's an earth scientist, who was my boss for a while. Um, and she and I became very close friends and having that, you know, knowing there's people there who support you, their friends, you know, they'll tease you, they'll help, help, you know, lift you up when you're down, you know, and, and help celebrate when things go well. And, and that has been really important to me. And I, I think in that movie, you really saw how those women women relied on each other to get through such a tough situation because here they were, they knew their skills were needed to move the space program forward. And yet they were being treated so poorly just because they were black. Um, and the fact that they persevered through that, I think is incredible. I agree. One of my all-time favorites as well. It was just incredible to see that resilience, that persistence, and especially in an environment where you're not really welcomed or accepted, you know, you're just there trying to make a difference. Um, so I thought the story was just a beautiful one, and they did a great job with producing the movie. Yeah, and I think I think one of the things that still... Um you know, we still have a ways to go because there's a, a great scene in that movie where Catherine comes into Catherine Johnson comes into a room and they think she's there to pick up the trash. That actually happened not that long ago to a woman I know when she was in graduate school and she's she's um, African American and she went into a room and they thought she was some of the cleaning staff. So we, you know, a lot of people like to think that we live in a post racial society, but unfortunately we don't. And and our perceptions, you know, and there's been this, for example, this famous test that's been going on for quite some time that if you ask kids to draw a scientist, you know, they draw a guy in a crazy white coat, crazy hair, um, you know, and that's who they think of when they picture a scientist. That is actually slowly changing. We're making inroads on that. So women can be pilots. Women can be scientists. Women can be engineers. They can help change the world. But you've got to convince that five-year-old, seven-year-old, 12-year-old girl I can do that because there are people who look like me who do that. Yeah, 100%. You know, I see and understand a great deal of the recognition with people making or breaking records, but I think it's just as important to highlight the quote-unquote everyday people who are contributing to projects and to the industry in their own capacity. Where are the headlines here? 
Um, you know, I think these stories are just as important for representation and visibility. One of the things I loved is in the um, in the Apollo exhibit, we actually um, feature the story of some of the women who sewed the Apollo spacesuits. Um, and, and so I always love that story because, first of all, it shows, you know, if, if you love if you love the space program, no matter what your skills are or how many degrees you are, there are ways you can contribute. And so here are these women, you know, those men would not have been able to walk on the moon if they didn't have really good spacesuits. And they did. And some of it's the seamstresses who were um, in, in Delaware um, in the United States who sewed their spacesuits. And so I'm, I'm really pleased we tell those stories too, as you say, not just the stories of the astronauts. For Apollo, there were 400,000 people who worked on the Apollo program. And let's tell some of those fun stories of all the different skill sets that were required to, to do something crazy, like go send humans to the moon. So if you had to give the green light to the sequel of Hidden Figures, is there someone from your time at NASA who just really stood out to you um, that you think should be featured in the sequel? Like, how did it take us so long to learn about Katherine Johnson? And who are the other incredibly inspiring people that we just haven't heard about? Who would you recommend to be featured in the sequel? You know, for me, that's kind of an easy one because there's a woman named Nancy Grace uh, Roman, um, and she is often called the mother of the Hubble Space Telescope. And so, you know, this was back starting as far back as the 1950s, you know, she was wanted to be an astrophysicist, you know, a crazy thing for a woman at that, that time. And she then went on to be the, the first head of, of astronomy and astrophysics at NASA. And she always was pushing for a, a telescope that would be in space that would help us really understand, you know, what is the origin of galaxies? You know, can we look by looking deep into space back in time closer to the the very early um you know era of the of the universe could we use that telescope even to look at planets in our solar system to learn about it so she pushed and pushed and pushed and and got the Hubble Space Telescope um to be a program and saw it launched and i am really pleased that um NASA is working on a new telescope um uh that was called W first, which is the wide field infrared survey telescope. And it is now the Nancy Grace Roman telescope. So they've named it um, uh, in her honor. So, you know, her story is one of persistence, knowing she had a good idea, knowing she was going after the big, the big science. Um, but when I think of the environment that she was working in, she was probably 90% of the time, the only woman in the room. So here she pushed an idea, she was innovative. Um, and she had like those women in hidden figures, she had to get past the fact that her colleagues were first, many of her colleagues probably were like, oh, she's just some woman. Wow. Amazing. That's an idea for Hollywood right there. Um, but I'll definitely have to look into her. It sounds um, like her story is just so inspiring. So during the really tough moments along the global flight, especially the crossing of the Pacific Ocean from Hawaii to California, Ellen, I just, I was just so scared. There was nothing um, but one big ocean below me for 14 and a half hours, and I was by myself. I often thought a lot about astronauts and the courage that they had to take that leap 
of faith and leave Earth's orbit. The astronaut's courage is just a characteristic that really resonated with me, and it gave me so much strength. During your time at the Air and Space Museum, you had the opportunity to work in one of the most inspiring buildings of all time. What is one characteristic that you've observed within these pioneers that fill up the halls? You know, it really it really goes back to that word perseverance, which I love our Mars rover is named Perseverance. Um, and I talked about that, you know, with Nancy Grace Roman. You know, when I think about my good friends who are astronauts, you know, they really do just like you. You got in that airplane and you flew across the Pacific, right? You were scared, but that didn't stop you from achieving your goal. It, it didn't stop you from saying, I have to keep going no matter how hard this is. And so when I, I think of my friends who are astronauts, um, Pam Melroy, who was the second woman um, to pilot a, and command a shuttle, um, Eileen Collins, who was the first woman to, to command a space shuttle, Ellen Ochoa, who was the first um, Latina astronaut. You know what, to me, what characterizes them is perseverance. It's, it's going into a meeting like Katherine Johnson did in Hidden Figures where people don't think you belong. It's striving for something where people don't think a woman is capable of that. Um, it's, it's really, and all of us, you know, to me, whether you're a woman or a man, you're going to get into situations in your life where you, someone has set an expectation of you and you know you can surpass that. You know you can do something. And it's so easy to give up, right? It would have been so easy for you to say, yeah, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. And, and you didn't, you persevered. And, and again, this goes back to like, how can all of us be that person who says, you can do this, you know, you can do this. And, and to some of us, I always, when I give talks to, to elementary school kids, sometimes I talk to them about Katherine Johnson and about how she had to go into rooms where people didn't think she belonged, but she knew she belonged because they needed her math skills. Um, and, and I always tell kids, channel your inner Katherine Johnson. Somewhere there's a little voice inside you that's saying, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can persevere. Yeah. Wow. Perseverance. You definitely need that. Is there a trait that's not so widely acknowledged in pioneers? You know, fundamentally, these people are optimists, um, you know, who believe we can make the world a better place, who, who believe that we can, you know, fight against gravity and, and go up in an airplane and fly across the Pacific or, or go up into space. You know, they have this fundamental quality of humans is to strive to do better to go higher to go further and and i love that because it's easy you know especially these days to to get pessimistic and think you know wow we were battling climate change you know there's all these political divisions and so it's easy to get you know pessimistic but i think you know somewhere we all have to find that look what we're capable of when we put our minds to things, when we work as a team, when, when we're brave, when, when we persevere. And, and I think that optimism is something maybe we don't talk about enough because it's easy to get bogged down in the negative. Who has been a great inspiration to you throughout your life? It doesn't necessarily need to be a woman, but someone that you've looked up to. You know, probably the biggest inspiration in my career has, has been Charles Alachi, who's, um, he was the director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's a radar scientist, um, first-generation American. 
Um, and he was my boss at various times, um, but he really mentored me from the time that I came to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory as a, as a postdoctoral researcher. Um, I don't know what he saw in me, um, but he not only mentored me, gave me incredible advice throughout my career, um, but also sponsored me. Um, and there's a difference, obviously, between a mentor and a sponsor. You know, a mentor is somebody who's going to give you advice and 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 really make some good suggestions to you, but it's kind of a, a one-on-one relationship. A sponsor is someone who takes that one step further and they put your name forward so that when they're in a room and someone says, oh gosh, who could we get for this job? They say, well, how about Shasta? How about Ellen? Um, and, and Charles did that to me to the point that um, he called me one day four years ago and said, oh, you know, they're looking for a new director of the Air and Space Museum. Can I, would you be interested in that? Um, and I was like, yeah, actually, that would be pretty cool. Um, and, and so the fact that he did that for me throughout my career is amazing. And, and so I try to pay that back. So I try to find um, really promising um, younger people who are, and realize you don't just have to be a mentor, which is really important. But being a sponsor is taking that next step. And Charles, Charles is amazing. We actually gave him um, the National Air and Space Museum trophy for his huge contributions to the exploration of our solar system. Yeah, you know, I didn't know about sponsors, people who would champion or vouch for me until I was getting ready to fly around the world. And I have to say, in the beginning, it was hard for me to be sponsored. Not that it was hard. It was just strange to have someone championing me. But with time, I realize the impact that it can have. I'm seeing a lot of mentorship programs where they're like, okay, we're going to team you up with this mentee or mentor. But what I find is that it has to be organic and it has to come from a place where these two people want to work together and accomplish a goal. Was your sponsorship like this? Was it organic? Or did you have to go to your sponsor and ask him, would you sponsor me? How did that work? No, no, it was totally organic. You know, and at times I didn't even realize he was doing it until afterward, you know, where I would find I would say like, so why are you talking to me about this job? And someone would say, oh, Charles suggested we talk to you. And then you're like, wow, okay. Um, So, you know, I do think you're right. I think sometimes when it's forced, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, and unless you're really committed to it. And, and I have been in, in mentoring programs. Um, I'm in one right now for the, a group called the Brooke Owens um, Fellowship, um, where they place women in aerospace careers um, for the summer. And, and we get assigned mentees. And I love my mentees, you know, and I get assigned them randomly. Um, but it's been great because, you know, they'll, they'll talk to me and say, oh, you know, I'm having I'm having, I'm experiencing this this summer. Can you help me figure out how to, how to deal with this situation I'm in at work? And, and also the fact I've had two daughters, I can you know, give them that mom life advice kind of thing. And so, so I, that's a situation where it, it is a little more structured, but it actually really works for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me. So, but I do think it's best um, when it's organic, um, you know, it does work. It does tend to work better. Ellen, can I share my Smithsonian story with you? You sure. I feel like almost everyone has a Smithsonian story. And what I mean by that, it's like it's either their first time that they went or 
a time that they went where they had just such a memorable experience. So many years ago, while I was training for my private pilot's license, my mom had the opportunity to visit the Air and Space Museum with my dad and two younger sisters. After her visit, my mom called me to share just how proud she was that I was working towards becoming a pilot. And then she went on to describe this really scary, dark airplane (laughs) at the museum, which was the SR-71 Blackbird. Before the call ended, my mom said to me, "I'm, I'm so proud of you, and I just know that one day your name will be in the museum. And I just laughed, and I said, gosh, mom, I don't even think I can get through my private pilot's license. I doubt that I will ever get my get to be featured in at the Smithsonian. Fast forward to five years later, I walk into the Smithsonian to receive the 2017 Air and Space Trophy for current achievement. And that night of my acceptance speech, I took a moment in front of the SR-71 aircraft and called my mom with tears in my eyes. And I just said, Mom, thank you for believing in me. My name did eventually make it to the Smithsonian. And it was just so great to know that she was, you know, all these years, just she just believed in me so much. Um, So, you know, I just I feel like there are so many stories that come from people who visit the Smithsonian. um, And that's my story. That's amazing. And the SR-71 is one of my favorite artifacts in the museum because it's so cool looking. But I do think, you know, it's that moment, like you said, like somebody had to believe in you and and that helped move you, move you forward. And, and, and your mom was so inspired by what she saw at the Air and Space Museum. And I like to say that the first woman to set foot on Mars is going to have been inspired uh, by a visit to the Air and Space Museum. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like everyone who goes into the Smithsonian walks out just wanting to conquer the world. Like many aviators around the world, the Air and Space Museum holds such a sacred place in our hearts. At the moment, the museum is going through a huge renovation. Can you fill in the blank here? So on opening day, visitors can expect... So the museum is very, very large. And so to keep it open for most of the renovation, we're actually doing it in two parts. And so we took the whole west end of the museum, closed it down, took all the artifacts out, which we're talking about airplanes here, DC-3s, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of um, uh, spacecraft and, and aircraft. And we moved them out to our other museum, uh, which is by Dulles Airport, the Stephen F. Udvar Hazy Center. And we put them in storage, cleaned them up. Um, you know, some of them, frankly, were a little dirty after hanging in the museum for 42 years um, and renovated the museum. I mean, took that west end of the museum back, basically down to the structural steel, replacing all the heating and cooling systems, um, the electrical systems. And we have started about mm, eight months ago, so during COVID, um, started putting the aircraft back into the museum. So late in 2022, uh, the west end of the museum will open. And that's going to be amazing because it'll be all the new galleries on the west end of the museum. But at the same time, we will close the east end of the museum where we have artifacts like the Wright Flyer uh, and um, a 
our moon gallery will be going into there uh, and our exploring the universe gallery. Those will all shut down. We'll do the same thing. We'll take everything out, take it out to Hazi, clean it up. Um, and the whole project will be done in, in 2025, 2026. A little delayed um, because of COVID, but hopefully hopefully not too much. So the good thing is when, when that museum reopens, um, even the West End reopens, you know, you're going to see new artifacts that weren't in the museum before. You're going to see new galleries that are really um, much more updated, much more um, experiential. And you're going to see a lot more stories of people who look like all of us. Oh, how incredible. That is so important. Wow. That's really exciting. I can't wait to go and see when the doors are, are open. So, Ellen, have you watched the Broadway um, musical Hamilton? I watched it about a year ago during the pandemic and just fell in love with the story of Alexander Hamilton. I, it was just it was just beautiful. Like here was history being retold um, to us in a very entertaining uh, way, but it was also very relatable. Has the Smithsonian considered a different approach to resharing history? You know, we have, and I loved Hamilton also. I actually got to go see it on Broadway um, before COVID, before everything shut down. And, and I, would, I would go a million times. I, I absolutely love it. And, and I think the Smithsonian is very much thinking, how do you bring history to life? How do you think, um, how do you help visitors understand the present in the context of history? And then start thinking about how we envision a, a better future. And to me, the really unique ability of the Smithsonian is that we are art, we are history, uh, we are culture, and we are science and technology. And how do you bring those subjects all together because they are intertwined, again, to help people understand things. For example, take climate change. You know, and a lot of people have been really frustrated that we haven't been able to get the, the, the facts of climate change across. But, but frankly, the Smithsonian maybe is in a better position to do that because we can bring in art and culture and think about how do you use, like, again, who knew we would all love Alexander Hamilton in history, but Lin-Manuel Manuel Miranda used song and dance to bring that story to life. It's, it's really about the storytelling. And, and that's what we're really starting to focus on at the Smithsonian. With all of the Hollywood movies and fairy tales, Sometimes it seems hard for society to accept that heroes are people. Do you have any recommendations on how we can manage our expectations? You know, I, I think it is really hard because I, I think you have to think about all the people we, we know. You know, everybody I know jokes like, oh, everybody's family has its, you know, has its issues. You know, I think it, I think it, it really is trying to realize Everybody is just a person and, and everybody's complicated and everybody's going to be striving to be better and, and yet have flaws. And I think the more we acknowledge that and the more we tell that story, the easier it is not to say, well, I'm going to idolize this person. Um, and and I, I just think the more honest we are about it. And frankly, I also think that can put a barrier between, for some people to accomplish great things. Because they think, oh, I'm not this perfect person. I can't tell you how many people have told me, oh, I wanted to be a scientist, but I didn't go into science 
because I struggled in math. And I'm like, hey, I got I got C's in math. I struggled in math. But again, I had people who were telling me, you know, that's okay. You can do this. You need to keep going. And so this idea that that the people who make it into the Air and Space Museum were perfect, unflawed, you know, valedictorian, straight A people. Nope. Nope. They weren't. And let's tell that story because frankly, that allows us to say, I don't care who you are. You can accomplish great things if you put your mind to it. Yeah, that's a very good point. Like, it's just that human element. Sometimes we just get so enchanted by people um, accomplishing great things. Like, wait a minute, <laughs> they're human too. They have bad days and um, they're moody, just like me. <laughs> they have, they're basically just like you and I but it's their act of bravery or boldness that has made them stand out from the rest. Yeah, and you can be that person too. Yeah, all right. Well, we'll wrap it up here, Ellen. But before we go, I just want to ask you, this is a question that I'm asking all the women on the podcast. What is the best piece of advice you have received as a woman in aviation? You know, the best advice I, I ever got was very early in my career, and it was from Charles Alachi, my, my favorite mentor. And it, it was, again, very early in my career. And I had identified a problem, and I was pretty proud of myself for having like figured this out. Like, all right, I've actually now tapped into this issue that's going to be a problem if we don't take care of it. And I went to him, and I'm like, I found a problem. And he was like, he looked at me, and he said, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. And again, he was so nice about it. You know, he's like, it's really great that you identified this. He said, but the next step is what I want to see, which is what is a solution? What is a path to a solution? And you think, okay, he probably shouldn't have had to tell me that, but it really rang true. Be the problem solver, right? You know, the identifying the problem is the first step, but be the problem solver. And that will really help you move forward in your career. Wow, that was helpful. I uh, I think that's probably one of the best answers that I've heard. Um, well, thank you, Ellen, for taking the time to share your story with us, along with discussing pioneers and heroes in aviation. You are such a great inspiration and a great advocate to us all. Uh, keep doing the important work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. It was wonderful to be here.